This morning's passage is from 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 35. Um, and you can follow along in the Blue Bibles um, on page 560. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonour, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Beck. Well, my kids uh, recently discovered a band called One Republic. Uh, adults, kids, does anyone know the band One Republic? Yeah, there's a few. They're, I mean, their prime was a little bit a little while ago, so it's okay if you don't know them. One of the songs that has uh, gotten a little bit of airplay is called I Lived. It's the title. And the last verse of this song says this. Hope that you spend your days 
and they all add up. And when that sun goes down, hope you raise your cup. I wish that I could witness all your joy and all your pain, but until my moment comes, I'll say, and this is the chorus. Right? You can hear from the vibe of the song, right, that it's a, it's a very inspirational piece. It's meant to make you want to go out into the world and take every opportunity and to seize the day and to stand on a mountaintop somewhere in the Netherlands and yell out, YOLO! Right? That's what the song is all about. Now, full disclosure, I like the song. Perhaps you could tell. You know, I, could, I can totally jam out to it and its vibe. And for most of us in the West, most of us as 21st century Australians, when we hear it, when we hear that message, we will generally think the same thing. Exactly what I described. That's what it means to live. What does it mean to own every second? What does it mean to live? 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection, and a charge that is sometimes leveled at Christians because of our confident belief in it is that it leads to us neglecting the life that we have here and now, so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly good is one way that it is sometimes put. If you look at it logically, It's an understandable conclusion for an unbeliever to arrive at. You know, if resurrected life truly is so great, if it is a world full of love and free of sin, then why would you bother enduring these dark days full of suffering and pain? Just spare yourself the heartache and and skip that step and go straight to the great part at the end. This is why it's so important to let God teach us through His Word in the Bible how we're to respond to these truths. Because it's a dangerous thing to take a truth, something that is truly true, and to draw our own logical conclusions from it ourselves. Look at how Paul finishes this passage. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Knowing that your labor is not in vain. That is the conclusion, not just for this passage, but for everything he has said in this great chapter about the resurrection. How can we know? How can we do that? How can we know that our labor is not in vain? Well, that's the reason why Paul has spent this chapter explaining the resurrection, explaining the fact that we will be resurrected. And here now in this final passage, he comes to how that might be possible. 
And so as we consider how the resurrection works, we must remember that it's significant, not just for when we die. It's not just something we look forward to. It is significant for how we live today. YOLO is different to YOLT. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the terms, YOLO stands for you only live once. YOLT is something that nobody says, but I am saying it, to introduce the idea that you only live twice. We will live differently today and for the rest of our lives if YOLT is true and YOLO isn't. Or at least... We should. This morning, I don't have any particular headings or points for us, but we'll simply walk through the text and continue to remind us of how it drives towards Paul's conclusion in verse 58. So let's have our Bibles open as we look at the rest of chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians. So here in verse 35, at the beginning of our passage, Paul answers... uh, Uh, Here is the question that Paul answers in the rest of the passage. It seems like, as we saw in verse 12, that some people were saying that Christians are not raised from the dead. And here we see what was probably the reason why they were saying that. As we noted last week, most Greeks and Romans would have conceded the possibility of a soul continuing on into eternity. But how could these mortal bodies, these these sickly and fragile and decomposing bodies, possibly continue on into eternity? Now, if that was the dominant worldview, you can understand how some would have rationalized to that conclusion. Sure, Jesus might have been resurrected, but there is no way our bodies could continue into eternity. Once again, another reason why we shouldn't take a truth and take it to a place that the Bible doesn't go. There is always a danger for us, especially as we explore God's Word further and learn more of His truth to let our own reason trump God's Word. And that was the danger that the Corinthians found themselves in. And Paul is clear about what he has to say to those who use this reasoning to deny the general resurrection. Now, kids... What does Paul call this person who thinks that we can't have resurrected bodies? It's on the screen. Anyone? Sorry, for the kids who, can, who are old enough to read. Yeah. Foolish of the back. Thank you, Connor. That's right. He says, you foolish person. So the person who's, who's trying to put forward this suggestion, he says, you foolish person or you fool. Now, that might sound a little bit harsh. And, well, frankly, it is. But the term also has a biblical background. Psalm 14, 1 says that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And the book of Proverbs speaks much about the way of wisdom compared to the way of fools. And Jesus himself was not afraid of using the term, whether in person or in a parable. In Luke chapter 12, when Jesus tells a parable about a rich person who lived for their riches and stored up all their wealth in their big barns, God's response to him is this, Fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? An appropriate parallel, really given that the person in that parable treasured life, this life, more than heaven. 
Most often in Scripture, the fool is the person who rejects God and does not walk in His ways. Paul's language is strong because that is what a denial of the future resurrection body amounts to. As we've already seen, to deny resurrection is to deny the gospel itself. And so Paul goes on to explain how this works. How is this possible to answer that objection? He opens with the general observation that what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. To sow something is to plant it like a seed, to put it into the ground. And that's exactly where he goes in these next two verses from verse 37. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as He has chosen, and to each kind of seed, its own body. Now kids, when you plant a seed, what comes out of the ground? Nothing. Well, how about when you water it and give it some time, what comes out of the ground? Still nothing. Oh, okay, you've been watching me do some gardening. <laughs> Anyone else? A plant, that's right. A plant or a tree or, or some wheat or grain, something like that. And that's what Paul is saying. The seed dies and what comes up is a type of grain or some other plant or perhaps even a tree. And it's important for us to recognize what Paul is doing here. You see, for us modern people, we're tempted to say to Paul, well, you know, Paul, I, I know that you're primitive and you don't realize this, but the seed doesn't actually die, right? It's still alive. It just grows into something else. You know, those are the same kind of people who like to tell Jesus that the mustard seed isn't the smallest of the mustard seeds. But to try and get technical on Paul here is to miss the points and to not read it in context. You see, Paul is drawing from the image of a seed going into the ground and being changed into something completely different when it sprouts. And he is comparing that to our own bodies being changed when they are resurrected. His point is that they are two different kinds of things. And we know that, don't we? You know, the seed that goes into the ground that is a bare kernel, it doesn't, it doesn't just get bigger and become a really big seed as it comes out of the ground, right? It changes form. It becomes something else. And Paul makes it clear here that it is God who has given the seed its body. God is the one who chooses its form, both before it dies and after it springs to life. Are you happy with the body that God chose for you? Maybe you're not. Perhaps you wish that God gave you a different one, one that looked different or functioned differently. Maybe you see it through the lens of a culture that prizes a certain type of physical beauty that doesn't line up with what you have. Maybe you've learned to value your body according to what other people say about it. Friend, God chose that body for you. He gave it to you. 
the body that He gave you is made in His image and He delights in it. Do you want to know how to become more and more content with the body that He's given you? The solution is not to be so-called body positive and never give yourself a basis for knowing its true value. No. You become more and more content with your body when you learn to see it through His eyes. As I saw somebody write once, the word ugly is never used in the Bible to refer to people. Every single one, every single human being is made in the image of God and is beautiful in His sight. Every image bearer, without exception. Even if you or somebody else, for whatever reason, might devalue the body that you have, God never does. Yes, look after your body, steward it well. But don't do it because you think it isn't good enough. Because no matter how deformed or unattractive it might ever become to you or to the people around you, it will never be ugly in His eyes. Never. Because He chose it for you. And He delights in it. And just as He chooses the bodies of seeds and grain... And He chooses our bodies. He chooses those of the creatures of the world. The flesh of humans is different to that of animals and birds and fish. And Paul doesn't specifically mention the word body here, but it's clear that that's what he's talking about. The bodies of humans and animals and birds and fish, they are all of different kinds. And that only becomes clearer when he shows that our heavenly bodies and our earthly bodies are also of a different kind. Glory is the word often used to describe radiance or brilliance, something which is really bright. But it also, especially in the Bible and in reference to God, refers to the unique magnificence of something. And so Paul here confirms that our earthly bodies have a kind of glory. But as will become clear, the glory of our heavenly bodies will greatly surpass the glory of our earthly bodies. Perhaps as he transitioned from talking about earthly creatures and their flesh and then our human bodies and their heavenly counterparts, Paul couldn't help but then continue to to keep escalating his view higher and higher to talk about the difference between the celestial bodies. The glory of the sun is different to the glory of the moon, which is different to the glory of the stars. And even the stars themselves, they differ in their glory one from another. Now, Paul's not trying to major in botany or biology or astronomy in making these statements. His point in all three examples is to show how God has created things of different kinds in each of these corners of His creation. And he's making it clear that in the same way, there are different kinds of things in all of creation, from the ground to the sky and to outer space. So it is with our bodies. 
That's why he goes on to say in verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. Resurrected bodies, heavenly bodies, they are not the same as earthly bodies. And now Paul goes into detail as to how. He puts the qualities of our earthly bodies on one side of the column and the qualities of our heavenly bodies on the other side. Our earthly bodies are perishable, sown in dishonor, sown in weakness, and are sown a natural body. The heavenly bodies, on the other hand, are imperishable, raised in glory, raised in power, and raised a spiritual body. I notice the seed and the grain imagery there. And many have asked the question, what's, what's Paul referring to with our natural bodies when he talks about them being sown? You know, some people say that perhaps he is talking about the time that we die. After all, he just mentioned in verse 36 how what is sown does not come to life unless it dies. So perhaps that's the moment Paul's referring to. Well, others suggest that in the same way that Paul, be, uh, sorry, that people being born is sometimes referred to using the language of seeds and sowing, so Paul is using it here to refer to us being born into these mortal, natural bodies. Now, both are possible, and I perhaps have a slight preference for the latter. But the point remains, whichever one you're talking about, earthly bodies, they have the attributes on the left, while our heavenly bodies have the attributes on the right. And what do these qualities mean? Well, I reckon in Darwin we have a good idea of things being perishable. Uh, if you leave anything out in the sun for a consistent period of time, you'll notice very quickly how it perishes. Now, kids, have you ever done that? Have you ever left something out on the driveway or perhaps just you know, outside in the sun for a few days or a few weeks? You come back a bit later and you find that the color is all faded or perhaps the plastic crumbles in your hands. Ever done that? Yeah, a couple of nods. Yeah. The worst, I reckon, is pool noodles. Just do not leave them in the sun because you'll end up with bits of them everywhere. Our bodies have this same quality of breaking up over time. The heavenly bodies won't do that. They are imperishable. Better than even the strongest powder-coated steel that you could find on this planet. Better than vibranium even, if it was real. But what does Paul mean by bodies being sown in dishonor? It's a tricky word because it makes it sound like uh, Paul is really devaluing our earthly bodies. I think simply what he's referring to here is the fact that we have inherited sin. So even though bodies have an earthly glory, that is, they are made in the image of God, sin has marred that image. Sin has tainted that image. Therefore, they are sown in dishonor. Our heavenly bodies, on the other hand, are raised in glory. The kind of glory that, will, uh, that they will have will out-glory the glory of our current bodies. As Paul would write to the Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. 
sown in weakness, raised in power, sown in ever wasting away and no doubt weakness in our bodies in comparison to an all-powerful God, but then raised in power by that very all-powerful God who has power over sin and death. And these earthly bodies, which have been sown natural bodies, will be raised spiritual. To many of us, this seems like a contradiction to everything else that Paul has said about the resurrection so far. And it would seem silly if, you know, the Corinthians are rejecting a physical afterlife, but are okay with souls going into the afterlife. Why would Paul say this? The reason is because we, when we hear the term spiritual, we think of a, a ghostly, wispy, immaterial existence. And the key is discerning what Paul means when he uses this term. So as we've seen throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the term spiritual to refer to things related to the Holy Spirit, to those who have the Holy Spirit. Look back in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, and Paul there is contrasting, he's, he's showing the difference between the natural person who doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God and the spiritual person who is able to discern spiritual things. Also, Jesus himself makes it clear in his conversation with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that those who are born of the Spirit are spirit. That's why he says, you must be born again. And putting all this together, Paul is clearly not referring to heavenly bodies as spiritual, meaning non-physical, meaning, you know, unable to touch with your physical hands, but as bodies which are of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul makes clear that the existence of a natural body means a spiritual body also exists. You notice he says here, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Why? Because of the gospel. As he says in verse 45, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Paul quotes Genesis 2.7 and the account of Adam's creation here, when God breathed life into him and contrasts him with, this, with the last Adam, the second Adam, Christ. We saw him explaining some of this in the previous passage in verses 22 and 23, where he said that in Adam all die, but in Christ all those who belong to him are made alive. In Adam we have received life, a perishable, natural body that is sown in dishonor and weakness, destined for death. That is the kind of life we have received from Adam. But in Christ... We receive an imperishable spiritual body that is raised in glory and power. But why don't we have those now, you might ask? Now, Paul goes on to explain. Kids, oh, sorry, come back here. What does Genesis 2-7 say that God made Adam out of? Dust, that's right. God made Adam out of the dust. And Paul makes that a point from verses 46 to 47. 
It is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Jesus came down from heaven to make a way for earthly people like us, people with earthly bodies made of dust, to receive heavenly bodies. We are born first with natural bodies, and since the second Adam has come to offer us resurrection life, we have the opportunity to follow him into a heavenly body. Look at verse 48. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. All of us, without exception, are of dust. The question is, will we all be of heaven? Perhaps you hear this morning and all of this just sounds like, wishful thinking. Maybe you agree with my earlier statement that Christians are useless in this life because all they care about is heaven. The irony is, eliminating heaven doesn't necessarily get you to the place of living a life worth living. As Paul mentioned in the passage from last week, actually more often than not, it leads to a life of self-seeking, meaningless pleasure. That is certainly true still today. But the problem with that is that for the rest of your days, you'll be wondering what you missed out on. What if I'd put more time into my career or my kids or my coolness? What if I'd taken more risks? What if I had asked that girl out? What if I hadn't asked that girl out? To use another well-known acronym with two O's, you end up with FOMO, which is, anyone know? Fear of missing out. Why? Because the time that you have in order to own every second that this world could give, to see so many places and treasure the things that you did, and to be able to say that with every moment that you lived, has to be done in a very limited amount of time. In short, YOLO gives you FOMO. But knowing that Christ will transform and change you at His coming and has an eternity of existence that makes this one pale in comparison, that gives you a kind of freedom to live that YOLO cannot. And it gives you a resolve to spend all of your days in this life that God desires for you in a way that, that pleases Him, that brings honor to Him, that glorifies Him, knowing that what is awaiting you is an existence that will, that will far surpass this one. Even if it means toil and labor for the kingdom, work that is not necessarily enjoyable in this life, Work that will, that will cause you to pour sweat and blood and tears. It enables you to spend yourself completely for Him, knowing that your labor is not in vain.
Now, don't get me wrong. This world is a breathtaking buffet of delights that we have the incredible privilege of enjoying. And we ought to. But this is just the entree. To make your home here and to put all your hopes in this world and in this life is like pulling into your driveway at home every night after a hard, long day at work and rather than getting out and going inside to your house to relax and to rest and to sleep on that, that incredible bed that you spent all that money you know, buying, you decide instead to just you know, stay in your car for the evening. You know, you've got a phone and seats that recline so that you're lying down. Why not? Yeah, I'll just, you know, chill in here. That might sound ridiculous to us, but that is exactly what you're doing each day. You make your home in this life and in this body. Cars are not designed to be lived in. Homes are. And in the same way, this earthly body is not designed to find its ultimate home and joy and purpose in the here and now. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, I'm so glad that you're here with us this morning and I hope you continue to come. This message of the gospel that we believe as Christians is all about this hope that Jesus gives us. And the reason that we love it is not just because we want to have a life after death, although that is certainly one of the reasons. No, the reason we love this good news of the gospel is because we recognize that it is only good because of God's grace, because He is good. Because he has poured out his grace and his mercy on us in Jesus. You see, without him, we would still be dead in our sins and headed for eternal condemnation as our sins deserve. And we recognize that our future in eternity, it's not just bleak and void. It's even worse than that. It is one that is under God's wrath in punishment for our sin. And yet God, in His goodness, sent His Son, Jesus, to live the perfect life of obedience that we never could. And to die in our place on the cross and be raised again to life on the third day. And that same Jesus, He calls all who will hear to turn away from their sin, to turn away from living for this life, to turn away from the flesh and to put their trust in Him so that they might receive forgiveness of their sin and inherit eternal life. That is the hope of the good news and is the reason why we look forward with such great anticipation and such great hope in our resurrection in Christ. If you don't know that hope, if you have not yet put your trust in Jesus, then let me urge you to do so today. And please feel free to come and talk to me or any others that you know here at Emmaus Road. We'd love nothing more than to talk to you about it. And kids, at this early stage in your life, put your trust in Jesus today so that you can spend the rest of your days enjoying God and living for Him. And brothers and sisters in Christ, 
does your focus on and anticipation of your resurrection sharpen your life today? Does it free you to actually and to truly live each moment in complete surrender to the Lord? Or are you weighed down by the burdens and trials of this mortal flesh? Are you weighed down by the expectations of wanting to find some kind of spark? Take those to Him. For the things that are within your power to do for the Lord, do them with all your might. And for the things that are not within your power, bring them to Him in fervent prayer. And surrender the outcome to His good and sovereign will. You can do that because, as Paul says in verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We live in these perishable bodies today. But one day they will be raised imperishable. And that ought to give us a clarity of mind and will and determination that those who don't have resurrection hope cannot have. We are almost home. And Paul goes on. He's already made the point that earthly bodies and heavenly bodies are of two different kinds. And now he gives us a bit more detail as to what the coming of Christ will look like. In verse 50, he makes it clear that natural bodies cannot inherit the kingdom of God. They must be those who have inherited imperishable bodies. That is to say, those who are truly spiritual, who have been born again by the Holy Spirit. If you do not own one of those at the gates of heaven, the bouncer will tell you to keep moving. And Paul reveals to us an apostolic mystery that was previously unrevealed. We shall not all sleep, but shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the blinking of an eye. Our bodies will change at the sound of the last trumpet and we will be raised imperishable. You might remember from last week, the New Testament often uses the term sleep to refer to believers who only die temporarily. And Paul is saying that we will, that will not be our permanent status. After all, the purpose of sleep is not to remain asleep. The purpose of sleep is to recharge your batteries so that you can then wake up and live. So the final trumpet blast will sound and those in Christ will rise imperishable. Jesus talked about the final trumpet blast in Matthew 24, but he didn't give us these details about how the dead will rise. He left that for Paul to reveal. And Paul also talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 4, if you want to check that out later. But notice the two words that Paul uses to talk about uh, what will happen to us when we are raised. We will be changed. Now that is totally in keeping with what he has been saying about the difference between earthly and heavenly bodies. They are of a different kind. 
And so therefore, in order to move from an earthly body to a heavenly body, you need to change. And notice what he says, though, in verse 53 and in the first half of 54. The perishable puts on the imperishable. The mortal body puts on immortality. And notice how he says, must. Paul is indicating that this is the only way. The resurrection is real, and it is the only way to inherit the kingdom of God. But as I said, he uses the language of put on, like clothing. When we put on different clothes, what do we say? I'm just getting changed. Interesting turn of phrase, isn't it? And that, in a small way, captures what Paul is saying. We will be changed. And yet that change will be the putting on of immortality. Here it's not like putting on different clothes. It's more like putting on different skin. Now this is crucial because, again, if you reason this out in certain directions, then you'll find that you could very well end up in the same place that some of the Corinthians did. You might think to yourself, well, if this body doesn't really matter, and, you know, it's not the one that I'm going to be taking into eternity, if I really am going to be changed and it's a different kind, then why should it matter what I do with this body? But Paul shows here that even though there will be discontinuity between our earthly and heavenly bodies, there is also some kind of continuity between who we are in these bodies and who we will be in those bodies. That's why it matters what you do with your body today. That's why you can't just eat, drink, and uh, be merry. For tomorrow we die, as Paul said just a few sentences earlier. That's why you can't take your body and unite it with a prostitute, as Paul told them in chapter 6. Yes, you will be changed, but that change completes the work that has already begun in you. As somebody who has turned from sin and trusted in Christ, that work has begun and it is continuing today and will be completed on the day Christ returns. So glorify God in your body. Do it in the here and now because you will do it with even more magnificent glory in your heavenly body. Brothers and sisters, do you live today in a way that has continuity with what will be your earthly, sorry, your eternal existence? Or are you more likely to think to yourself, you know, I'll just focus on what I'm doing now and what I want to do now and I'll think about whatever comes next later. Such thinking is YOLO thinking, it is not resurrection thinking. Such thinking only increases your discontentment and your depression in life. It only increases your frustration and anxieties with things not going the way that you want them to. And it only increases your attachment to and your treasuring of this life and this mortal body. Such thinking, it only decreases your ability to enjoy now what you will have for eternity. 
It only decreases your will to pursue now that God, uh, sorry, uh, now the God that you will, will be pursuing for all eternity. And such thinking only decreases your resolve to remain in Him and to spend your life laboring for Him. Brothers and sisters, you are destined for a glorious life in a sinless world. Every Christian agrees that that will be something better than the best world that we could possibly imagine here today. So why would you waste your time thinking that your earthly body has greater glory than your heavenly body? Why would you waste your life making your home in your mortal existence when you know you'll be clothed with an immortal one? I'll tell you why. Because more often than not, we're too earthly-minded to be of any heavenly good. We treat these perishable bodies as though they're the end game far more often than we would like to. Lift your eyes to the Savior, to the one who has not only justified you, but whose spirit is sanctifying you today and who will glorify you on the last day. Because on that day, the final enemy, death, will be defeated. And Scripture will be fulfilled. From verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Here Paul quotes Isaiah 25, 8, which was part of our reading earlier this morning. And Hosea 13, 14. The context of Isaiah 25 is understandable because it's a prophecy that is pointing forward to God's future deliverance. And Paul changes a bit of the wording, but he maintains the original sense. God will raise us up. Hosea is a little bit trickier because the context of that quote is actually judgment. But Paul takes it and he flips it to show how in Christ's victory on the cross and in his resurrection, he overcomes the power of death. These are such incredible verses. Death, where is your sting? This isn't just a mosquito sting or just a bee sting. Well, maybe it is like a bee sting if you're allergic to bees. Fatally allergic. But this is a fatal sting. This is the worst kind of sting. And Jesus has grabbed that sting and he has plucked it right off. He has defanged death. A brown snake without its fangs, without its venom, would be harmless. Jesus has done that with death. And he has crushed that snake's head. And in so doing, he has also defanged sin. 
As we saw in verse 17, without the resurrection of Christ, sin has not been defeated. That's because one flows from the other. The curse of sin is death. And the sting of death is sin. That is to say, sin administers the fatal blow and the poison of death. Sin stings and brings death. And it is empowered by the law. As Paul would elaborate on more fully in the book of Romans, the law amplifies our sin by showing how far short we fall from God's perfect commandments. This verse is what one theologian called theological shorthand. Paul likely taught these concepts more fully to the Corinthians, which is why he didn't need to elaborate on them here. He simply needed to signpost them so that they understood what he was talking about. The sting of death, the sting of sin, has been defeated by our Lord Jesus Christ. What could a person do but break out into praise of God when thinking about this amazing truth? That's exactly what Paul does. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God who has dealt with our sin in Jesus. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory over sin and death through Jesus Christ our Lord and who continues to each day as we crucify the sins of the flesh and lift our eyes to Him. Thanks be to God who, who has made it possible for us to think of death not as the end of our lives or the end of our story, but simply a break as though we were going to bed for the night, ready to wake up in the morning. He is the one we praise. He is the one we live for. And it's because of all of this that Paul can finish this glorious chapter with this verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Therefore, in light of all of this, in light of the gospel, in light of the certainty and the necessity of our resurrection, in light of the fact that our mortal bodies will put on immortality, that at the sound of the final trumpet blast, we will be raised imperishable with Christ. Therefore, Paul gives us four instructions. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Be steadfast in the gospel, not giving up, unwavering, setting your eyes fixed on the gospel. Remember that it is the message that you stand in, that you grip, that you hold fast to, that you remind yourself of when life is hard and in which you are being saved. Have an unshakable confidence in it that can be described as immovable. Build your house on the solid rock of Jesus and His words so that when the storms come and when the winds blow, you will not be swept away. 
Spend your life abounding in his work. Remember Paul's words in verse 10. God's grace to him was not in vain. Why? Because he worked harder than any of them. How are you abounding in the work of the Lord? What fat do you need to surgically remove from your life that does not honor Jesus? Brothers and sisters, each of us has the same 24 hours in a day, the same seven days in a week, the same 52 weeks in a year. How much of it is devoted to the work of the Lord? In one sense, it all is, and that's certainly true. Yet Paul's use of the words in vain in this final verse and the way that he's used it in the rest of the chapter seem to indicate that he's talking about the kind of labor that is all about preaching the gospel, all about building one another up in the gospel, encouraging one another to continue, to remain, to stay, to hold fast in the gospel. Look at verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Hold fast to the gospel. Gossip the gospel. Remind one another of the gospel. It is our salvation. Notice how Paul is not just speaking to pastors. This isn't a letter to Timothy and Titus about how to be godly elders and overseers. It is the whole church that is to abound in the Lord's work, knowing that it is not in vain. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Is the sweat pouring from your brow as you labor in the gospel? Are your bones weary at the end of the day as you labor in the gospel? Do you lie in bed spent? knowing that your labor is not in vain. Knowing that when the trumpet sounds, you'll be clothed in immortality. Knowing the truth of the gospel and the truth of the resurrection focuses your life today like nothing else can. What troubles you this morning, church? What what joys and glories do you hope for in this life that can be focused by the resurrection? When that moment comes, When Christ takes you home, will you be able to say, I lived? How does your eternal destination shape your life today? Do you know that feeling when you've been on the road for so many hours or even days? We know that here because there's nothing around for thousands of kilometers. Do you know that feeling of anticipation of arriving home and being able to sleep in your own bed? Oh yeah, you know it. You've done it a few times in the last few weeks. It can make you a bit restless to get there, right? 
You might even be tempted to speed just so that you can get home. But of course, you would not do that. But it gives the drive meaning. It gives it a sense of urgency. Far more than if you just pick a road and start driving without any idea of where you're going. Or worse, picking a road and then knowing that it will lead you to the middle of the Simpson Desert. Brothers and sisters, that is the sense in which we ought to live. We have our hearts and our heads honed in on home. And do it knowing that you're not just going to pull into the driveway and then stay in the car. No, a glorious rest awaits when you arrive and you put on your immortal body. This is exactly how Paul viewed life. It's why he could say famously in his letter to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. With every broken bone, he lived. Knowing that every broken bone would be clothed in immortality. Will we say the same? Let's pray. Father, lift our eyes to you. Because too easily we keep them here. Father, what a glorious truth that we repeat and hear and say so many times, yet does not affect our hearts or shape our lives. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It has been swallowed up in victory in Christ. Oh God, we need your help. Please, Lord. May we see our risen Savior and rejoice. May we see the resurrected life that he has purchased for us. And may that train our eyes on home. And may that focus our lives today in a way that nothing else can. May we be so heavenly minded that we are of earthly, eternal good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.